It was July of 2006, and 33-year-old Vicki Eagleman, recently divorced and with five children, had moved in with her mother and stepfather on the lower rural Indian Reservation in South Dakota. Vicki had begun dating a man named Sonny. And on an exceptionally hot day, Vicki, Sonny, and others would spend the day swimming on the Missouri River. However, Vicki would soon disappear after being seen by several witnesses at the river. And several weeks later, her horrific fate would be revealed, and more questions than answers would be raised. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 29, The Murder of Vicki Eagleman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host, Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on all major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube with delayed episodes. Social media and contact info will be listed at the end of the episode. If you wish to support the podcast and help fund article and record searches, as well as get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and voting rights, I encourage you to check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash midwestmysteryfiles. I would also like to take this moment to thank my amazing patrons, Laura and Teresa. Now, without further delay, on to today's case. Victoria Jane Eagleman, or Vicky, as she went by, was born March 14, 1973, to Robert Eagleman and June Pup in Mallette, South Dakota. Not much is on the public record about Vicky's early life, but from what I could find, in 1981, her mother June would marry Richard Lefthand, an officer with the Lower Brule Tribal Police. Vicky has at least two sisters and five children. She married in 1998, but was divorced by 2006. In 2006, newly divorced Vicky and her five children were living with her mother, June Lefthand, in Lower Brule on the Lower Brule Lakota Indian Reservation. The Lower Brule Indian Reservation is located on the west bank of the Missouri River in Lyman and Stanley Counties in central South Dakota. It is a very rural area that boasts a population of approximately 1,300 people. In 2019, June would describe her daughter, Vicki, to the True Crime Chronicles podcast as being quiet and kind. She was clean and she didn't like clutter. She would explain that on any given morning, Vicki would be in the kitchen making breakfast for all five of her children, and she would be engaging with every single one of them. While tending to her children, she would always make time to take care of nieces and nephews. As in Vicky and her family's cultures, nieces and nephews were everyone else's children as well. After moving back in with her mother and stepfather, Vicky would begin dating a man by the name of Bernard LaRoche, commonly referred to as Sonny. Reportedly, Vicky had a history of dating abusive men, and it is strongly alleged that the same occurred with Sonny. Friday, July 28, 2006, was a very warm day, with highs in Lower Burrell 
pushing into triple digits and hitting a high of 110 degrees Fahrenheit. This made it the perfect day to enjoy the water and go for a swim, which was exactly what 33-year-old Vicky's plans for that day were. That morning, Vicky, Sonny, Sonny's sister, her boyfriend, and Vicky's sister set out for a day of drinking and swimming. The group reportedly spent the day on or around the Missouri River, where they were seen by several people enjoying the day. It wouldn't be until later in the evening that the hot summer air would give off to a cold breeze, at least for June Left Hand, who would start to feel uneasy when Vicky would fail to return home. The narrative, from what I can best put together, is this. Sonny arrives back at the left-hand residence sometime in the night. Richard, Vicky's stepfather, wakes up early on July 29th and notices that Sonny is asleep in Vicky's room. However, there is no sign of Vicky. According to Sonny, Vicky dropped Sonny off the night before, and he had no idea where she was. This raises some concern in June, who finds it bothersome that Vicky did not contact her when she would not be coming home. According to June, Vicky did not have a cell phone. However, when she knew that she would be staying somewhere, Vicky would call June from the phone at that location so that the phone number could be captured on June's caller ID. This way, she would be able to contact Vicky if necessary, as well as just know where she was. Right away, June would begin making calls to try and get a line on Vicky's location. She also advised Richard to inform his fellow tribal police officers so that they could also keep an eye out. Vicky's sister would arrive at June's home that afternoon and inform June that she had seen Vicky earlier in the day, with some sources reporting that she had dropped Vicky off somewhere. Although the details of any of this are unclear, as to circumstances or location. Vicky's sister would go on to tell June that Sonny and Vicky had been arguing the day before, so badly that Sonny's sister, who generally took his side in altercations, stepped in to take sides with Vicky. Again, the circumstances around the argument and its overall severity are unclear. After Vicky still failed to return home, June would begin to call hospitals to see if Vicky had been admitted anywhere. After no luck, she would report Vicky missing on August 3, 2006. Initial reports were taken by the Lower Brule Tribal Police, which is controlled under the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Unfortunately, even with a husband as a captain, the powers that be did not take June or her report seriously, telling her that Vicky was most likely out drinking or partying. Shortly after Vicky is reported missing, Vicky's children would find her smashed glasses a block away from the house. They also would find a ring that belonged to her. June turns these items into the police, but there still appears to be little concern for finding Vicky. It's around the same time that poor June is bombarded with phone calls by community members who share various theories and rumors about what happened to Vicky. Overwhelmed by such horrific thoughts, she still manages to relay every single one of them to the police. Despite lack of police interest, 
June refuses to let up on finding her daughter. She would tell the True Crime Chronicles podcast that she would go as far as calling the individual at the Bureau of Indian Affairs who oversaw the Lower Brule Tribal Police. And, after a heated exchange, June was finally able to get the ball rolling. On August 14, 2006, a community alert was finally sent out, alerting residents of the missing Vicky, and that it was considered abnormal that Vicky would not be in contact with her family for that period of time. At this point, we're almost two and a half weeks after Vicky was last seen. It was shortly after this that the FBI would also become involved. On August 22, 2006, over 100 lower rural community members would begin a search for Vicky. Search crews would utilize ATVs, boats, and trucks in the search. It's reported that Sonny did not assist in the search at all, but he was interviewed by reporter Lou Raguse, who at the time was working for KELO in South Dakota. Raguse would tell the True Crime Chronicles podcast that Sonny appeared inebriated and had alcohol on his breath. He would also refer to Vicky in the past tense, saying things like, Vicky was. In the article that Sonny was interviewed for from KELO Land, the only quote from Sonny is, quote, She didn't say anything. She just dropped me off at the house. That's the last time we've seen her, so I don't know where she went. The day would close out with no new leads or traces of Vicki Eagleman. But the next day, news would finally come. And it would unfortunately not be to a good end. On August 23rd, 2006, residents would be searching Medicine Creek in rural Lower Brule when they would discover the nude body of Vicki Eagleman stuffed into a drainage culvert. Reports state that Richard Lefthand, Vicki's stepfather, was the one who discovered her body, and he was so distraught that he had to be forcefully pulled away from her. It's reported that Vicky's clothes were nowhere to be found, and that she had a crack on her face, which later autopsy findings would conclude that blunt force trauma was the cause of death. There was also signs of sexual assault, but it's unclear if any DNA evidence was ever obtained. It's speculated that her body may have been dumped in the Missouri River, but was grabbed by the current and pulled into the creek and eventually into the culvert. With the unfortunate discovery, police began to search for suspects. Sonny was questioned, and while there was an alleged history of domestic abuse between him and Vicky, the fact that he was seen in the left-hand home was enough evidence to not completely rule him out, but also force investigators to also consider other subjects. It's also been stated that Vicky's husband was questioned, but quickly cleared, as he was out of the country at the time. If there were any other people investigators felt were strong suspects, they've never been mentioned in public reports. And June would still feel that investigators, at least at the local level, were not taking the investigation seriously, and for which she had very good reason. It's unclear the exact date, but it has been reported that in late 2006, a box containing evidence, case files, and crime scene photos 
pertaining to Vicky's murder investigation was found on the streets outside of the police station in Lower Brule. It was luckily found by the citizen who was passing by and returned. This would raise serious questions, though, about the effectiveness and thoroughness of the investigation. Unfortunately, almost 17 years later, that is about where the case still stands. In that time, as far as the public knows, there's been no solid leads announced and no major developments of any kind. In the void of this, we're only left with theories. Vicky's case is hard to put the pieces together and come up with a solid theory, and that mostly has to do with a lack of information and a somewhat confusing timeline. We know Vicky goes swimming on July 28th on the Missouri River. Several witnesses see her at the beach, and later that night, or early the next morning, Sonny returns to June and Richard left Hand's house without Vicky. He goes on to tell them that they had a fight, and Vicky dropped him off. Then the next day, July 29th, Vicky's sister tells June that she saw Vicky earlier in the day, although the circumstances are unclear. The strange thing about this is that some reports state that the beach was the last time Vicky was ever seen alive, while also referencing Vicky's sister in the same story. This could merely mean that this was the last time she was confirmed to be seen by other people outside of the group that she was with. But I've always found it interesting how that information was presented, if that was the case. Essentially, after swimming at the river, we have absolutely no idea where Vicky went or who she talked to besides her sister the next day. The obvious person that people are going to point a finger at here is Sonny. Sonny and Vicky's sister both confirmed there was an argument between Sonny and Vicky, as well as allegations of domestic violence. The problem is that while Sonny did come home by himself, Vicky was still seen the next day by her sister. Although, admittedly, as I've said before, the circumstances behind this are unclear. June did state that generally, if Vicky didn't come home, she would call from the location she was at, so June could catch the number on her caller ID. This didn't happen that night, so that could give some argument that Sonny struck before coming home. But again, she was supposedly seen the next day by Vicky's sister. It's also quite possible that wherever Vicky went that night didn't have a landline, and she could have been unable to find a cellular phone to use. There's also the fact that might raise some suspicion, that during the search for Vicky, Sonny did refer to her in the past tense, like he knew she was gone. Now, I'm not going to be subtle here. We all know from past episodes that disappearances and murder rates are very, very high among Indigenous women. Nobody knows this better than Indigenous individuals. I don't know much about Sonny or his overall demeanor, but it's quite possible that whether he was involved or not, he could have possibly just already accepted a bleak view that Vicky was not coming back alive, if at all. The last thing to touch on with Sonny is that we don't know his movements after he left the left-hand home on July 29th. 
obviously there's the possibility that Sonny and Vicky crossed paths on Vicky's way home, and something happened from there. But much like everything else here, there's nothing to support that either way. So, while it's easy to point fingers at him, and understandably so, we don't have what we need to say either way, if he's guilty or not. Something else to touch on is that Vicky's smashed glasses and a ring that belonged to her were found a block from the house, approximately a week after she disappeared. This is interesting to me. I do feel that if it was someone who knew Vicky, Sonny or otherwise, they would have been more careful than to leave key items that could be tied to Vicky so close to where they knew she lived. Granted, plenty of people have been far less... Granted, plenty of people have been far more careless in their crimes, but it's worth noting. This does open up the possibility of a possible random act, which, given a lot of the circumstances here, I feel is a valid course to look at. I won't go too far off the rails on potential scenarios, but I feel there is a real good chance Vicky may have been walking home, and within a block of her home, something happened. How it went down, and who was involved, we can't say for sure. But given the personal effects left behind, I think it's safe to say she probably didn't go easily. One last thing I want to touch on is the evidence found outside the police station. I only bring this up because it does raise a lot of questions, and I imagine someone had the thought upon first hearing about it that maybe someone in law enforcement was involved. This is something I don't particularly want to speculate on, because of all the theories out there, I have the least to go on with this. However, it is still concerning that such poor care could be taken with such critical evidence. The only logical thing I can think of, which is still very shitty and unprofessional, is that maybe the files were being transported between the FBI and tribal authorities, and the box was somehow dropped without anyone noticing. Whatever happened to Vicki Eagleman, one thing is for certain. It was all at the hands of someone. A young mother is taken, sexually assaulted, beaten, and then suffered the indignity of being thrown in the river like she was useless junk. Upon her disappearance, while a mom searches desperately, and children wonder where their mother is, authorities, like we've heard so many times in indigenous cases, treat Vicky like she's a mere party-goer, off having a great time while her family worries. Even after personal effects are found, discarded and smashed, they continue to do nothing. I do understand that tribal departments are generally strapped for officers, but in this case, it seems like they were just dismissive and not citing a lack of staff. Then, to have her case files left in the street, only for a citizen to find and return them. Imagine if it had been the murderer who found them. They would have been gone forever. The case would eventually go into the hands of the FBI, but they too only have so much time and resources to spend on missing and murdered indigenous cases, and, due to a very, to put it lightly, volatile relationship, many indigenous citizens tend to have a distrust of the federal government 
and are untrusting of them or unwilling to speak to them. Vicky's case, like others I've covered recently, is relatively unknown. And I just happened to stumble across it by pure happenstance. But while it may not be widely known, at the root of it, a family lost a daughter, an aunt, and a mother. A loving stepfather had to be pulled away from the woman he called his daughter. And five children have had to navigate the world without a mom who loved them dearly. Seventeen years is far too long to go without answers. As always, I encourage you to share this podcast or any other resources you may choose to look into. The best thing any of us can do is keep Vicky's story alive in any way we can. You never know who could be harboring the smallest memory that could help bring Vicky justice. And they may just need that little push to finally say something. If you have any information on the murder of Victoria Eagleman, please contact the FBI Pierre office at 605-224-1331. There is currently a $10,000 reward for information. If you're looking for any further information, there is not much out there. You can listen to episode 25 of the True Crime Chronicles, where Vicky's mother is interviewed. Otherwise, there are a few news articles and Reddit posts that relay most of the information found here. If you wish to let me know what you think happened, have case suggestions or comments, or just want to follow me and the show on social media, I can be found on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, Twitter at Files Midwest, and on Facebook by searching for Midwest Mystery Files. You can also email me at Midwest Mystery Files Pod at gmail.com. I do also post photos and sometimes links relevant to each case on social media, mainly on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Good Pods, please feel free to rate and review the show. This helps make the show more visible in searches, and more importantly, helps bring attention to the cases I cover. Thank you to all who have done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all next time.